Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on October 28th of 2018 under the headline, Portland's play to beat out the Dows literally cost a mint. Here we go. When hardcore coin collectors examine a promising piece of numismatic history, the first place their eyes usually go is to the bottom right side of the front, looking for a tiny letter known as a mint mark. Usually the mint mark is a P or a D, representing the main mint at Philadelphia or the branch mint at Denver, respectively. Less commonly, you'll see an S representing the branch mint at San Francisco or a W representing the mint's newest facility at West Point, New York. If there's no mint mark at all, that means it's from the Philadelphia mint, the main one. Mint marks of O, New Orleans, C, Charlotte, North Carolina, or CC, Carson City, Nevada, are very rare, and in most cases add a lot of value, metaphorically speaking, to the coins they're stamped on. 1880s Morgan silver dollar coins from the Philadelphia Mint, for instance, are now averaging around $50 on eBay. An S Mint mark doubles that to about $100, and a CC mark doubles it again to about $200. Now, keep in mind, these are rough average asking prices targeting a general market. They're presented here for comparison purposes only. Like, if you have a Morgan silver dollar with a CC Mint mark on it, don't take it down to your local coin collector and say that you know it's worth $200 because you heard about it on off Oregon history. Okay, you get it. You get the idea. That list of rare Mint marks, though, came close to including another, which probably would have been D.C., And no, that doesn't stand for Detective Comics, because that would be way more coolness than the government is capable of manifesting. No, that would stand for Dow's City, as the Dow's was once called. In fact, that probably would have been on the list had it not been for some resistance from jealous business leaders in Portland and a badly timed shipwreck. Of course, I've never heard of a well-timed shipwreck, but work with me on this. Anyway, the plan for a branch mint in Oregon was hatched in 1862, and for the same reason that the one had been built in San Francisco eight years before, because there was a full-on gold rush going on and the area was flooded with raw gold nuggets and dust. Hauling raw gold thousands of miles to a far distant mint before it was fully assayed and properly measured was both expensive and risky. San Francisco, of course, had been the main city center of the Great California and Southern Oregon Gold Rush of 1848, and after the Branch Mint was built there in 1854, it stayed busy striking coins from the California gold and Nevada silver for most of the rest of the 1800s. The Dalles was the main city center of the smaller gold rush that had broken out in 1861 in Griffin Gulch, near Baker City. More gold was found the following year in Whiskey Gulch, near Canyon City, and by the end of that year, Eastern Oregon was flooded with prospectors digging out tons and tons of raw gold. The Dalles, rather than Portland, became the center of all this activity because there was a mountain range between Portland and the gold fields. The best and safest way to get there in those pre-railroad days was to go to the Dalles and get on a riverboat. Riverboat passage was expensive, and there really wasn't anything in Portland that the Dalles didn't have, albeit at ridiculously inflated prices. So the Dalles became the San Francisco of the new gold rush, and Portland became a downstream port that supplied it and helped get the raw gold from the Dalles to the federal mint in San Francisco to be refined and stamped into coins. 
This wasn't as cumbrous a process as the one that had inspired the San Francisco branch, which would have meant hauling raw gold over 10,000 miles around the Horn of South America and back to Philadelphia, but it was plenty cumbrous for all that. The raw gold would get shipped down the river on a riverboat, portaged around the rapids at Cascade Locks, loaded on a coastwise sailing ship or steamer in Portland or Astoria, and sent down the west coast to the branch mint at San Francisco, a risky, expensive journey of more than 900 miles, including one really nasty river bar. So, in December of 1862, U.S. Senator James Nesmith introduced a bill in the Congress to build a Portland branch mint to handle it. This was early in the Civil War, though, and legislators had yet to feel the full financial pinch that an Oregon branch mint would help them solve. They'd be scrambling to find hard currency to finance the war effort within a few years, but that hadn't happened yet. Plus, putting a mint in Portland only solved half the problem. The gold would still have to be brought down the Columbia. Congress passed, and time went on. A year and a half later, though, wartime financial circumstances inspired Congress to abruptly bring it back up and pass it but the location, quite sensibly, was changed to the Dalles. Oregon politicians, few of whom represented the Dalles, but many of whom represented Portland, did not take this well. The next year, 1865, they introduced a bill that would change the location back to Portland. It was defeated, but all of the wrangling took time, and the Mint couldn't start on its facility until it knew where to build it. So nothing happened before the end of the Civil War, and with the end of the war, the federal government lost its sense of urgency. The project got underway nonetheless, and William Logan was appointed superintendent of the new mint. All appeared to be on track, but then Logan and his wife died in the wreck of the steamer brother Jonathan on their way home from San Francisco. Three years went by without a new superintendent being named. Then construction finally started on the new building. That construction was well on track to being done when, in the summer of 1870, the crews got the word to stop. The project was being abandoned. What had happened? Well, first of all, the West Coast state's transportation infrastructure had changed radically since 1862. Suitable stagecoach routes had been developed, and everyone could see that there would soon be railroad lines everywhere. Also, since the branch mint at Carson City was now open, the overland run had gotten a lot shorter and less arduous. So it was no longer necessary to load the gold on and off of three different boats and ships and sail across the Columbia River Bar on a 900-mile journey through storms and fog to get to the mint. Secondly, by the end of the 1860s, it was clear that the Eastern Oregon gold rush was petering out. It might be re-energized, everyone knew, if another big strike opened up a new set of gold fields somewhere else in the area, but it had been seven years since the Whiskey Gulch strike near Canyon City, and since then, basically nothing. The party appeared to be winding down, and the federal government was not keen to have a big facility in the middle of nowhere servicing a tiny and dwindling trickle of local gold, which they were increasingly convinced would be the situation by about 1875. <laughs> and guess what? They were right. The half-built mint building in the Dalles remained, of course. It was built like a city-block-sized bank vault with windows, with thick walls made of cut stone blocks and storage vaults beneath, capable of shrugging off dynamite attacks from above and tunneling efforts from below by any would-be burglars. Its heavy construction enabled it to function as a one-building fire line when the town caught fire in 1871. Flames leaped from building to building, gobbling up about six dozen homes and buildings before slamming into the fireproof stone walls of the mint building. The break slowed the fire down enough for the fire department to get a handle on it, saving the other half of the town from a similar fate. A later fire damaged the inside of the building heavily in 1943, but stone doesn't burn and it was repaired. Today, the old mint building houses Freebridge Brewing, 
Its catacomb-like vaults full of archways built with bricks lend themselves very nicely to the atmosphere of a brewery and wine shop. Key sources in this story included works by Brent Zimmerman and FreeBridgeBrewing.com. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do or just want to say hi? Or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead. Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶